Hi, friends. This is episode 44 of the Bible Lab Podcast. You are listening to the Bible Lab Podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy Ice. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for coming back for episode 44. This is by far one of the most challenging sessions that I've ever been part of, and it covers the life of Samson. One of the most difficult parts about it is God using completely flawed characters. And I know it it sounds crazy to think that that would be a problem, but ultimately as we wrestle through it and we see all of the issues, by the time we come out at the end of this discussion, I guarantee you are going to be richly blessed by seeing the character of God in a way that we typically don't talk about him. More than most sessions, this is probably one of the ones where you really want to get the study guide on our website, thebiblelab.com. Go to the episodes page and right next to episode 44, click on that little icon for the study guide and either look at it on your screen or print it out because especially when I get to the scriptural part, I have to really run through chapters 14 through 16 of Judges in this And if you have that study guide right in front of you, it's going to help you stay focused and stay on track and not get lost while I literally race through some of the most incredible details that make this story one of the most incredible stories about God and his character. So sit back, enjoy the ride as we go on a trip into God's character as we conclude this series called The Judge of Judges. Welcome to the Bible Lab. Number one, people with lots of muscles look gross. Ah, look at this. Okay, so I'm seeing 50, no, 40% yes, 25% no, and I believe the remainder would be 15% maybes, and it looks like a bunch of ladies holding it up because they don't want to offend their muscleless men sitting next to them. But we know what you mean, ladies. Number two, before I get myself in too much trouble, most television evangelists are frauds in some way. Most television evangelists are frauds, and so some of you are really raising those up very fervently. I am seeing a majority. It looks like about 70% yes, 20% no, and 10% maybe. So the vast majority of you are saying television evangelists, (sighs) most of them, are frauds in some way. But if you'll just send in $100 to me, (laughs) I can change your life. Number three, religious leaders who have had major moral and ethical failures should step down or be removed from office. Ah, here we go. That's what I expected. You are people after my own heart. It looks like 90%. Yes! Get rid of those bums. 2% no, and the rest maybe. Get those jerks out of here. I have to tell you, it's going to come out today, so I can go ahead and tell you. I don't know if you've ever taken those spiritual gifts inventory tests, you know, that tells you what spiritual gifts you're strong in and which ones you're weak in. 
I can tell you without a doubt, I, I've taken those tests, I, I think about nine or 10 times throughout my ministry since 93 um, till a couple of years ago, I took another one. And every single time, the one that's been absolutely consistent is not my strengths. The one that's been absolutely consistent is my weakness. I always score the weakest in mercy. <laughs> can we all say mercy? Yes. I just, I just do not have mercy for those, especially in leadership, who have moral failures. We're going to talk about this a little bit more. But this is something I, I have to work on, and that's why today's study absolutely rocked my world. It's probably one of the most difficult. This whole series has been difficult. The book of Judges, I thought, what a great idea. Yeah, I get about three weeks into it. I'm like, what am I doing? This is, this is the hardest series we've ever done in two, over two years. But this week, uh, actually more than most weeks, uh, even out of this series, by far is the most challenging for me and something that I'm really going to need your help to stretch me, to understand the character of God because th there are things within chapters 14 through 16 I just, I'm really having a difficult time wrapping my mind around. Can you help your pastor today, please? <laughs> I need your help. Number four, if you choose to step away from God, you also step away from the full power that the Holy Spirit brings. Ah, majority of you are raising yes. It looks like about 65% yes. The rest of you who think it's a trick question are raising no or maybe, <laughs> and it looks like the no's barely edge out the maybes by maybe 2%. This is a tough one. If you choose to step away from God, you also step away from the full power the Holy Spirit brings. Let me ask you this. Uh, I won't have you raise your hand. That's embarrassing. I won't put you on the spot. But those of you who read, I got to say this fast. It sounds like my ride's here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. They passed on there after someone else. Good. Okay. So. Those of you that read Judges 14 through 16, keep your minds on the task. Don't get distracted here. Those of you that read 14 through 16, how many times does Samson pray to God? How many times does it say uh, Samson asked for the Lord for help? And he did it. Once. When? At the end. At the end. How many times does Holy Spirit power, miraculous strength, come upon Samson? in those three chapters, multiple, multiple times. This is really difficult. You're going to see what I'm talking about. This is a very difficult. You thought it was easy, okay? Samson and Delilah, okay? A simple story about a guy who just was completely distracted by the beauty of a woman. That's not what the story's about. It's completely different from what the felt board let us tell the primary kids, okay? There are some scenes we just would not create felts of, and we'll see in a moment. And lastly, number five, God doesn't care how you live as long as you serve your purpose. God doesn't care how you live as long as you serve your purpose. Hmm. A resounding no. It looks like about 98% no. A couple of yeses just in the hopes that you're, you're catching me and a couple of maybes, but predominantly no in the class. God doesn't care how you live as long as you serve your purpose. As we look at the story of Samson in Judges chapter 14, 15, and 16, 
it raises a ton of questions. We're going to get there in a moment. But I, I want to get us into the emotional space of how you would feel had you lived in the time of Samson and Samson was one of your judges. Because if you were a faithful follower of Yahweh, you'd have some questions. God, how are you working? And so I want to ask you this question just to get us into that mindset. Without naming names, we don't want to get sued here. Have you ever been, <laughs> excuse me, have you ever been shocked that an unethical, immoral, or publicly broken individual was in some way successful in ongoing religious ministry? Was God blessing them, or were they just using church to gain a following? What has your experience been? Without, without using names, um, have you ever been shocked that an unethical, immoral, or publicly broken individual has in some way been successful in ongoing religious ministry. What's your experience been? We're going to start back here at Carolyn. The British Columbia Canada Conference published, a, actually it was the commission of a federal government in their state, published a book called Policing the Flock. And it was a number of stories about various religious groups that had a minister that uh, utilized his influence and power and, and uh, magnet personality to fleece the flock. Unfortunately, one of those people was in the Seventh-day Adventist. Yeah. And, and what does that do? What's, what does that do to the people who experience it? You know, it's, I think it's very demoralizing, and we get back to the idea again of you cannot be putting your faith in a person, no matter how much it is. If Randy ran off with the prostitute tomorrow, would we all leave the university church? Some would. I think some would, some yeah, would. because they would yeah. be discouraged. And mm -hmm. again, you can't put your trust and faith in one person. We're humans. Yeah, yeah. When I, uh, when I moved to a, a certain church years ago, um, with, within like a couple of days of getting to that church, um, one of the teachers at the church school was accused of being inappropriate with a student. And um, the enrollment just plummeted because of that it was and the teacher was not even there anymore they had removed the teacher's ongoing investigation and ultimately litigation and still the enrollment plummeted even though everyone was trying to make sure that everything was being done on the up and up michael well <clears throat> within the catholic church there's a huge problem yeah. of sexual abuse by priests uh, probably the most notable one in this country is Cardinal McCarrick, who was ultimately defrocked. But it's challenged the faith and belief of many, many Catholics. Yeah. What I've tried to do is remember that we're all frail human beings. We all make mistakes. And yeah. I wouldn't want to have to publicly declare some of my failings. Mm -hmm. It would be mm -hmm. very embarrassing to do that. It doesn't change the fact that these are, these are difficulties within the Catholic Church that need to be addressed. I think the, the present pope, I think, is trying to do that. The, the difficulty, one of the difficulties the Catholic Church faces, because it's so huge, I mean, it's over a billion members, and so I wish I'd said, could tell you I'd have a magic answer, I don't. All yeah. I can say is what we need to do is rely upon the Holy Spirit to give guidance. Yeah. 
and that's what keeps you hanging on? Is that what keeps you hanging on? Yes, it, it's, you know, I'm 83 years old. I'm not going to give up now. I've been... <laughs> yeah, you know, well, this is Sabbath, and Bill Lovell has called me a, a Catholic Adventist, and I changed that. I said, no, on Sabbath, I'm a Adventist Catholic, but I'll be a Catholic Adventist tomorrow. Tomorrow, yes. <laughs> that is awesome, Michael. That is awesome. It's interesting, when, especially as you look at uh, televangelists. Uh, there's a, a saying in the South, because of <laughs> all of the repetitive moral failings of some of these very prominent evangelists, that in the South, you sin really big, and then you cry, and you ask for forgiveness really big, and a week or two later, you're back in the pulpit. Um, and you've seen that. But it makes a lot of people cynical. And you ask this question, seriously, this is not the first time this guy's been caught doing this, and you're still sending in your money? You're still supporting this guy? Why? How can you support a guy that, and then you fill in the blank? It causes a major issue. Back here. I have been in the church for many, many, many years. I'm very old. And I've had a lot of experience with this. I want to share what the Lord has taught me about this subject. And without going into each detail, um, when the Bishop McIntyre from Los Angeles was asked why he didn't report his, uh, his uh, priest, he just moved them away to another. He said, because God forgave them. And they repented, and so I didn't report it. But there's consequences to our behavior. And the consequences to this kind of behavior is you, you're a criminal. It was a crime to do this, what they were doing. And when it's a criminal, though we're not of this world, we have to obey what goes on in this world. We are still in it. Yeah. And so that. God had forgiven them uh, was beside they still had to pay the consequences and we have several in jail right now yeah. and it's still going on but the lesson that I want to share with you and learned is that that question it says religious leaders you know they should be removed from office mm. that puts us in a judge position where we don't belong and the Lord only knows if they're preaching for money or if they're preaching for fame or if they're preaching for whatever. Yeah. But he knows who is preaching uh, for the will of God and that souls will be saved. And the Lord has taught me that he uses people who allow themselves to be used. Mm -hmm. And he's not looking at their good or bad behavior. And there's tons of ministers famous on television who have been accused of all of this. But the Lord still does it. Mm -hmm. And I go back to the miracles that God shows with these people who behave so poorly. Uh, the miracles still come on when the Bible, when they ask Jesus why is this man ill is it his parents is it him is it whoever mm -hmm. and he said no he's healed for the glory of God mm -hmm. so the miracles we see by whomever 
are from God. And you taught us the lesson of, of uh, it's to blaspheme if we say that of God is of the devil. Yeah. And so this is what I have learned that God uses people that allow themselves to be used and that we're not to judge whatever their behavior is. Well, rule number one, you're not supposed to use my words against me, number one. Um, just kidding. You're right, though. And this is, everything that you said is what makes today so challenging. Because in your mind, I know, many, I'm not reading your mind, but I can tell, in your mind, many of you are saying, yes, there is forgiveness, but there's also consequences. And if someone is doing something that is targeting underage children and doing lewd acts on them, yes, we can try to help them get forgiveness from God, but there are consequences with mankind. And in that, can we trust you up front? Can we trust you in the children's department? You said, you're sorry, you said God forgave you, but can we let you now be one of our children's leaders? It's, uh, this is that, it's not a tightrope, it's like walking on a hair. I mean, it is such a difficult place to be. We're going to take a couple of more, and then we're going to take a look at Scripture to see how very real this scenario is in the life of one of the judges of Israel, one of the most famous judges. I just wanted to say that when a, a person dedicates his life to gospel work, hmm. he's still a person, and he's still a sinner saved by grace. Mm -hmm. Uh, but having said that, all the comments I, I've heard so far this morning are spot on. Yeah. Uh, there's a tremendous damage done when somebody in a position of trust reaches that trust. Mm -hmm. uh, I, have, I have witnessed it more times than I've ever, anybody should witness it, whether it be a pastor, whether it be a school teacher, mm -hmm. it, it doesn't make any difference. Uh, and it still angers me. Yeah. But for the person that first sends their children to a church school, uh, that's coming into church after someone has befriended him and studied the Bible with him for months and years, mm -hmm. to, to have them see this is, yeah. uh, is crazy. Yeah. I, I don't even have a word for it. Yeah, yeah it makes us speechless. Exactly. Thank you. Over here. In the last few years, I've noticed something in all of our attitudes that makes us, I think, particularly vulnerable to issues like this. And it's a thought process that says that the only people that run into these problems had some particular moral flaw to begin with. And since we don't have that particular moral flaw, we don't have to take any precautions because we're not in danger of th that problem. Mm. And I actually was reminded of this when I um, was over in Orange County at the large church over there. And uh, the pastor there who had been a personal friend and been mentored by Billy Graham spoke about his relationship shortly after Billy Graham passed, and mm. and in the film, it, Billy pointed out how in the 50s, 
they specifically took this problem head on and said, maybe we're good people, but we are human mm -hmm. and we are going to do everything we can to ensure that we don't end up in this situation and take all proper precautions against that because we know we're human. And a lot of us, I think, are proud and think that we're above any of those things, but I think almost any of us could fall to one of these temptations if we're put in the right situation. And it's it's and we're we're without protection then, and uh, we need to be cautious, all of us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, here in about a month, I'm going to be preaching in the big house uh, about an individual who is the most trusted disciple, and there's a reason why he was the most trusted. Um, he gets a bad rap because of one thing he did. Why did he do it? Um, speaking of Judas, um, probably one of the most misunderstood biographies of all time is the disciple Judas. Uh, when we actually take a look at how is it that the best people do the worst things? Good people do bad things. Smart people do dumb things. How, how does that happen? Um, you, you bring up a good point, Jay, and that's that's why I'm really going to wrestle even more difficult, uh, in difficult ways. Because Samson's not even a good person. <laughs> um, and so we're going to have to wrestle even deeper with this story in asking, what does this say about God? What is important to God? And why does he accomplish, accomplish things through broken, flawed characters like Samson? And in understanding God's approach, what does that mean for me? And so we're going to take a look at that. Uh, two more comments. Sharon? I think that we also need to look at our faults in this. We particularly today live in a celebrity-mad uh, culture. And I think that's not just modern. It's just worse now. But most people can't stand, or a lot of people can't stand, adulation and constant popularity and constant being, be, being quoted. Yeah. And we get to the point that if it's our team or our favorite star or our favorite political figure, we're willing to just... Um, we'll make excuses for them. Yeah, make excuses. Yeah. Overlook it. So do we need to act differently hmm. to these people? Do we maybe need to pray for them more than we need to, more than applaud them? It's beautiful, Sharon. That goes back to exactly what I spoke to in the introduction today. It's not part of our podcast, but just asking the question. If it's not if our time together studying the character of God doesn't change who we are and how we respond to other people, we're truly not connecting with the character of God. We're just using it as a field study. We're just seeing it in the wild, but in no way incorporating that into our own life. And that's the difficult thing. It's hard for us not to jeer and cheer when someone has an opposing view and then they get caught. We just had in the news an individual who is in trouble because of a fake police report saying he got beat up and they said some uh, very uh, inciting terms to get one group even more angry at another group. And 
many people sit there, uh, sit there and watch the newscast and say, good, I'm glad they caught him, because those people. And once we start saying those, it's no longer us trying to be part of helping the world connect to Christ, because we're dividing, we're dividing out people. So in the real world, Sharon, it becomes very, very difficult for us to put into practice God is love. He loves everyone. How can the Savior be dying on the cross, nails in his hands, the people at the foot of the cross jeering him? Their sole intent is that they destroy him, and Christ says, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Of course they knew what they were doing. They were destroying him. But Christ takes it that next step. It's the God view that says, no, you don't know what you're doing. You think you know what you're doing. You think you're destroying me. But you don't know who I am. You don't know my mission. You don't know where I'm from. You actually don't know who I am on the inside. So how could you possibly know what you're doing? It's the God view that says, I cannot divide myself from you because of what you think is different between you and me. We are the same. In the sense that we all come to the foot of the cross needing to be connected to the Savior. And in doing that, it helps us to stop dividing and helps us to start being productive and helping connect people to what true love is all about. Last comment before we go through the filter of Scripture, right here. I believe the greatest evil is evil done in the name of God. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we could spend a whole session on that one alone. Let's take a look here. I have summarized on the study guide because it's, it would take us too long to go through, but I've summarized the life of Samson as it's told through Judges chapter 14 through 16. Ultimately, to look at this flawed character that God himself chose. Which brings us to the question, how much, how much does God know? Everything? He knew what Samson would be like? And yet he chose him? Scripture says, before you were even born, I chose you. So before Samson was even born, he chose him to be a Nazarite, to be set apart, dedicated to God, to help rid the people of Judah from all the trouble of the Philistines. So what happens? Well, you start reading in chapter 14, and you see the first woman. And some people are a little confused because her name isn't Delilah. What's her name? We don't know, because it just says a woman. He sees this woman. He falls for an unnamed Philistine woman and demands his parents to arrange the marriage for him. In the literal Hebrew, Judges chapter 14, verse 3, Samson says, she is right in my eyes. Now, those of you who've been reading through Judges or been part of this, you know this is a consistent, a consistent phrase. Scripture says over and over again, and they did right what was in their own eyes. It's the same phraseology, only Samson's saying it in first person. She's right in my eyes. Go get her for me. So, parents go down and make arrangements. Samson gambles with a riddle to get 30 new pairs of clothes. It backfires when his constantly crying and begging fiance gets him to divulge the secret. She tells the 30 family-appointed friends the answer before the end of the seven-day wedding feast. By the way, they hang on to that until just before sunset, 
There's some phraseology used there to give you this sense that they're playing with him to make Samson feel like he's won just to the last moment, and then they squeak it in. And they give their answer in a poetic form as well. Samson gets angry and kills 30 uninvolved men from a town southwest of them simply to take their clothes so he can pay up his gambling debts. Samson leaves in a huff back to his parents' home before consummating his marriage. At harvest, he returns to see his wife, but discovers she was given to his best man. In rage, he catches 300 foxes and ties their tails in pairs. By the way, that word in scripture could also mean jackals, which some historians say are a little easier to catch than foxes, but either way. I challenge any of you to do that. He attaches torches to them, lights them, and releases them to burn all of the crops, orchards, and olive trees, which they do. The Philistines retaliate by burning Samson's, uh, uh, it's Samson's father-in-law, this, uh, sorry, uh, his father-in-law and the, fa- uh, the almost father-in-law's daughter to death. Samson retaliates by killing many Philistines, then goes to live in a cave. The Philistines retaliate by setting up an army camp near Judah. The men of Judah protest, why are you attacking us? They respond, we're here for Samson. So, the men of Judah, 3,000 of them in all, betray Samson and go to the cave to deliver him to the Philistines. They say to him, don't you know that the Philistines rule over us? Whoa. Who's saying this? Men of Judah. Men of Judah say the Philistines rule over us. They don't say God rules over us. What are you doing to us, Samson? They don't like their judge. Samson makes them promise that they won't kill him themselves, but to tie him up. His bargain here is you don't try to kill me, and I won't kill you. Okay? He says, I don't want to kill any of my own, my own men, people of Judah, so just tie me up and hand me over to the Philistines. So, so they did with two new ropes, and they delivered him to the Philistines. As Samson arrived at Lehi, we're going to come back to that word, Lehi, the Philistines came shouting in triumph, but the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Samson, and he snapped the ropes on his arms as if they were burnt strands of flax, and they fell from his wrists. Then he found the jawbone of a recently killed donkey, He picked it up and killed 1,000 Philistines with it. Now, I said we're going to come back to Lehi. Do you know what Lehi means? Jawbone. So Ramath Lehi means the hill of the jawbone. So chances are Lehi was actually named after this event. It wasn't named that at that time. It also says that um, he used the jawbone of a recently killed donkey. Uh, Many people believe the reason why they focus on uh, it's recently killed, is because a jawbone that had been out in the desert for a long time would be too brittle and would break maybe after a hundred killed Philistines. <laughs> you got to have a very dur- durable jawbone to get a thousand Philistines with it, I guess. Samson is now very thirsty, and he cried out to the Lord, you have accomplished this great victory by the strength of your servant. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of these pagans? So God caused water to gush out of a hollow in the ground at Lehi, and Samson was revived as he drank. 
So he named that place the spring of the one who cried out. Samson. You can't name it the spring that God gave me. It's still all about Samson. It's the spring of the one who cried out, Samson's spring. And it was still at Lehi when the book of Judges was written. Then, sometime later, Samson goes to Gaza and spends the night with a prostitute. Can I hear an amen? No, no. No. The men of Gaza, it's in the Bible. Um, the men of Gaza plot to kill him in the morning and wait at the town gates. I have a huge question here because of what happens next. But Samson gets up at midnight and rips the gates, posts and all, and carries them on his shoulders to the top of a hill. Here's my question. Where were the men who were waiting to kill him? At the gates. And at midnight he goes and he picks up those same gates. Maybe they're leaning against it. And he picks them up and takes them to a distant hill. Now, there's many places that they say it could possibly be, uh, some as many as 37 miles away. We don't think he did that. Um, it's just because of the names that are used. Chances are it was a hillside right across from Gaza so that they would look at it and it would be an embarrassment to them that he took their gates to the hill on the other side. How are we going to get those back? Um, so it's only after all of this that Delilah comes on to the scene. From the beginning... She is a paid spy for the Philistines. And the amount of pay that they offered her was astronomical. A huge amount of money for her day. Her only goal is to help discover the secret of his strength, or more accurately, the secret of his kryptonite. Samson has experienced this scenario before at his week-long wedding feast when his unnamed fiance kept pleading with him to divulge the answer to the riddle. But once again, he displays his weakness of mind and character. His lack of eyes to see the trap they were setting for him ultimately led to the loss of his physical eyes that caused him to now see nothing, nothing physically anyway. We see at the end of his life that he does see his need for God's strength and the need to fulfill God's divine purpose in his life. And now I'm going to do something I don't typically do, is I'm going to ask several questions, and you guys decide what order you want to answer these in. We've done it before, but it's been a while. But I, there are four, four major, major questions that come up to my mind after going through this story. First of all, does God know everything? If so, why would he choose Samson, who would be such a mess and a life full of so many contradictions? Why would God choose him? Secondly, can God use less than imperfect people? It seems that Samson did not have a close relationship with God, and yet God's power still came to him. Third, does God work with those who are not close to him as much as he does with those who are intentionally striving to have a close relationship? This doesn't seem to fit what we normally teach, does it? And lastly, what does God's choice of Samson say about God's character. What do you guys think? What answer do you want to help us with of these? We're going to start with Raul. Um, I'll start with the first question. And um, I kind of need to apologize anyway. This story bothers me a lot. Me too. And I may need counseling after that. 
I'll, you counsel me, I'll counsel you. Uh, it bothers me, and, and so does the story of David. Hmm. Yes. Um, I mean, come on, Pastor. These two guys are in the Hall of Fame, mm -hmm. or faith, yeah. in Hebrews 11. 11, yeah. And David is called a man according his own, God's own heart. Mm -hmm. And last night, as I was uh, reflecting on this, I wrote here a note for myself. Um, Jesus said that many are called, but few are chosen. Mm -hmm. It bothers me that sometimes the chosen are the unexpected. Uh, at least for me, you know, unexpected in my own list. Yeah. The historian is seated on high and reads Samson's career from beside the throne of God. The way human stories are read from up above is very different from the way they are read down here. Mm -hmm. And it still bothers me because I would <coughs> not have chosen Samson or David or the 12 disciples. Yeah. Uh, please help me with that. I, I have a problem. Yeah. Do I? Um, <laughs> I don't know, but it bothers me. No, I, I, that's, that's what is totally tearing me up. Because ultimately, I have to ask the question. I have dedicated my life, and many of you have, if not all of you, have dedicated your life to live life according to God's plan. And poverty's nerfed. I know that. And I'm living an example that not, nobody is perfect. But yet, what are we striving toward? Do, do, do we not challenge ourselves to live godly lives? I mean, you, you read through the Pauline epistles about how to live in the world and not be of the world, how to live as an example. That, that, you know, if you're going to be a deacon or an elder, what are, what are the qualifications? How do you live? And yet, we have these biblical characters who are just an absolute wreck. They're a train wreck, and yet God is working through them in mighty ways. And it really bothers me. And it should bother many of you who have dedicated your life, and you're like, I'm still waiting to see the power of God work through me. It's, it's really irksome. Why do I have to go through my life not doing the things that I would prefer to do and go through what seems to me to be a fruitless life? It's very demoralizing. When I relate this story to my life, I'm glad about it. Yeah. Because I didn't spend my life not doing the things I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Maybe you did. And I'm glad that God used people who've messed up. Period. Yeah. And it's, I, I agree. I, I agree 100%. But then when I sit down and think about it for a while, I still get upset. <laughs> And it also challenged me in another way. Um, we can't help it. We're, we're humans. Um, there was an unnamed individual who caused me a lot of grief. Uh, ultra works-based, right-wing, conservative, 
Christian who actually made money off of preaching and writing against me and several of, of my colleagues. And it was painful, and they were gathering quite a following. And it was really hard not to be delighted when the news article came out that they had physically assaulted an underage girl in a hotel when they were doing a campaign somewhere. And it was really hard not to get really excited when, because that young lady had the courage to come forth, that two other girls came forth and said, yeah, the same thing happened to me at other places where this person was speaking. I couldn't, I couldn't stop myself from being able, in my mind, to think, good, maybe that'll shut them up because this person is doing the opposite of the gospel. It's the bad news. It's not the good news. And, and I really wrestled with that from the standpoint of, should I be cheering that this guy fell to that level? And I, I wrestled for about a month until I heard that he was starting to do ministry again and people were following him again. And I'm thinking, this guy's a serial rapist, and yet people are willing to let him continue. And, and then I read about Samson going to prostitutes and living a, a, a life that he does, and it rips me apart because I realize how judgmental I am. And, and it really puts me in a quandary of saying, okay, God, I know you uh, lift up leaders and tear them, <laughs> take away the ones that you don't want to distract. But all the pat answers I've always had in the past get all chopped up in the story of Samson. I'm going to tell you where I've come to, but I still want us to wrestle with it for a while. And so why don't we go over here? I have more questions because you mentioned it's the last Sabbath of Judges you're going to talk. Yes. So why the book named Judges? Well, they're not doing so much like Judge we understood. They're more like the rogue leaders of Israelites. Yeah, like mercenaries. Yeah, or mercenaries. Yeah. And now come to Samson. Most of them, the rest are leading Israelites. We don't see Samson leading any Israelites. He's not doing any judging. So is this like ironic or I don't know what's going on here in this book of Judges, whoever wrote this book. Yeah. Maybe that can give us understanding more on this I know. story. Well, what was their problem? I agree. I agree. Uh, who is the microphone over here? Harvey. I, I want to take a different approach. Please. When God calls a person, and he calls everybody, yes. he gives them a task which they cannot do by themselves, but it's just beyond their ability. And so as they think of the task, there is the temptation, I can do it. And as they try to do it, they fail. Now, obviously, God expected them to ask him to help them. Yeah. And if they do, they will grow in faith, and he will give them another task they cannot do. And if they ask God, they will grow again. And the series goes on. But if they try on their own, they will collapse. Mm -hmm. Samson believed he could do it. Oswald Chambers refers to him and said his biggest enemy was his greatest strength. Yeah. And I think that's true for each of us. I agree. I'm so glad you said that because it does connect with what Raul was saying. 
Samson is in the Hall of Heroes in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. If you continue reading down, he's, he's listed there with a couple of other individuals from the book of Judges and, and elsewhere. But when you get down to verse 34 of Hebrews 11, it says this. Their weakness was turned to strength. Their weakness was turned to strength. It's not that God strengthened them and they used the strength with God's extra strength. It was their weakness that God turned to strength. And that's, for me, I'm going to get there in a moment, but that, for me, was the revolutionary understanding of what happened in the life of Samson. And most importantly, what does that mean about the character of God? Over here, Jordy. I, I think we're making a false equivalency between people who have chosen to lead the church and Samson. Samson did not choose. He was chosen. Involuntary and, leadership, yeah. And, and, I mean, all of us, or at least I, from my two years at Andrews, could tell you many stories of pastor's children doing things that you could pick them out in a crowd. You could just tell that they were pastor's kids. I mean, I, I myself, I myself, uh, my father wrote the book on vegetarian nutrition, and he would have to sit me down before he went to a conference and say, now, Jordy, don't even look at that chicken. <laughs> so so there's, there's, a, there's a big problem that, that we're seeing here that... Like, Samson was not a, a moral leader. He was a guy who was forced to not cut his hair, was forced to do all these things, and we're seeing him acting out. I mean, he, he like he said, he had a ton of strength, yeah. and he used it. And it's not until he was blinded and he was humbled because he couldn't do anything that he had to reach out and ask. Um, so... Yeah, he wasn't judging, but at the end, he did the final judgment of killing all of God's enemies. Um, so, I mean, David was chose. He chose, but Samson to me is a story of pity. It's it's this guy that just could not handle all the responsibility that he was given. It's hmm. good. Good point, Jordy. Yeah. Speaking of stories that bother me, this one relates to me very closely with the story of the prodigal son. Yes. That story bothers me because mm -hmm. why does he get to be the star of that story just like Samson was really a mm -hmm. prodigal yeah. when like you said so many of us struggle mm -hmm. to do things that or not do things and yet I think the key factor is that we see all of these struggles as about us when really the whole conflict is about the character of God mm -hmm. and th the word that this gentleman just before me used I think is humility it, if we have humility, then God can use us because we're all broken instruments to begin with anyway. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, back here will be the final comment. I heard a great one yesterday. Uh, my car had broken down, and when I started it, it kept going back to this I thought man speaking, and it was a recovering alcoholic woman. Her vocal cords were just destroyed by the alcohol. And she gave an example of her walk in faith with relationship with God, saying that most of us have this idea of our relationship with God like an ATM card. And I think that's the story of the prodigal son and many of us lacking in the empathy. I. I reached a point in my life where I literally walked into a church and said, 
I'm tired of being a hypocrite, God. I'm either going to immerse myself in this so-called world without guilt, or I am going to try to live up to this person that I'm not. And I love that God says, I cause my reign to fall on the evil and the good because of that. And in it, she said, if you view God, your relationship with God like an ATM, you're always expecting to do something and get something back. But if you view it as a savings account, it doesn't mean that every time you pray or study or work on your relationship that you're getting something in turn at that moment, but it's for your future relationship with God. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Thad. So what does this say about the character of God? To me, it says several things. Uh, it tells me to stop being so judgmental. Uh, like I started out, uh, I don't score high in the gift of mercy. And so when some of the people who are at the top uh, start plummeting down, I instantly go into judgmental mode. Instead of thinking, what purpose of God was just lost or not advanced to the level that God needed it to be? Ultimately, as we look at the story of Samson, there's one thing that remains. Because Samson's all over the place, but one thing remains, the purpose of God. What is God trying to do? God is trying to, through Samson, accomplish what they should have done 300 to possibly 400 years earlier. They should have settled that land. But instead of doing what God told them to do, because he knows, beginning, middle, and end, instead of settling the land when he told them to, other people groups started coming in and giving them trouble and saying, no, get out of here. And had they done what God told them to do when he told them to do it, we wouldn't have the book of Judges. That's just it. We would not have the book of Judges had the children of Israel done exactly what God told them to do in the way he told them to do it. But unfortunately, we people do not do things the way God wants us to do it, and we mess up his timeline. But God, this is a beautiful thing about his character, but God is so loving and so forgiving and merciful of our lack of follow-through in what he's told us to do, they said, okay, let me write you another plan. And in doing so, Samson tells me very clearly that I need to take a step back and I need to reflect the character of God who says the most important thing is not how flawed the individual is, but to look at what is God's ultimate plan. God here looks down at a very flawed character and says, despite the fact that you are not in any way, like some of the people coming down the road, Samuel, who will have an incredible relationship with God, one that God talks to him and tries to help. Even though you don't have that type of relationship, I'm still willing to come to you and help you to do powerful things to advance the kingdom of God. And in doing that, God tells us something very important today. We, we've wrestled with all this thing of, of human judgment as we with human eyes see other humans who say they represent God or represent an institution that should be godly, and they fail miserably. Throughout the process, God says this. Yes, they're flawed. Yes, they made a mistake. But my forgiveness is so large that I will not throw them. I will not discard them because they're making mistakes repetitively. What it tells me, the number one thing I take from this story is regardless of what I've done and regardless of anything I'm going to do, God does not discard his people. 
And as long as you continue to stay focused on God, I know I have a purpose. Which, by the way, every single one of you in this place has a divine calling, a divine purpose. Some territory that God needs you to advance. Our challenge is we make one small mistake and in our minds we run from God because we assume that because we made a mistake and turned from God in this one moment that God has discarded us. The life of Samson should give us the most courage and the most assurance today that despite what you do, because I'm pretty confident that all of us in this room have not lived the life of Samson. Not talking about the muscles, I'm talking about all the mistakes. And despite the fact that he repetitively did things that were immoral and unethical and on his own and self-focused, God did not discard Samson. And he will never discard you. So go live your purpose. That by far has to be the greatest, not only challenge, but the greatest hope in our life is that God is not discarding you. He has such a great plan that he wants to work through you. And I can't wait to hear your story on the other side of the pearly gates once Christ takes us home. Now, thank you so much for being part of this series, The Judge of Judges. If you'll come back for episode 45, we are starting a 13-part series that is just absolutely amazing. It is exciting. It is called Kingdom Tales, and it is from the mouth of God himself. These are the parables that Christ spoke about the kingdom of God, and these are absolute great places to look at to See, what does God say about himself? What is God's character like and what is he the most interested in? These are the things that truly show the nature of God. So I invite you to come back for the next episode. God bless you as you continue on your journey to get to know the character of God. Thank you for listening to the Bible Lab podcast. If you're planning a trip to Southern California, make sure to reserve your VIP seats in the Bible Lab by emailing us at info at thebiblelab.com. Programs are recorded each Saturday at 10.30 a.m. We hope to see you soon. Until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character of God.